Hello and welcome to this month's Archimedes, the evidence-based podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. My name is Bob Phillips and I'm here to talk you through a critical appraisal and introduce you to the topics of two questions that arose in clinical practice that were answered by real clinicians going out, searching the evidence, appraising that quality and coming back with a clinical bottom line. When my middle one was small, he used to love a book called Emergency and it was a repeated phrase that went through that and it was obsessive for a while as books for small children are. There were pictures of police bikes, fire engines, ambulances, mountain rescue 4x4s and lifeboats. Not in one frame was the rescued individual put into a clinical trial of therapeutics or diagnostics. Well, that might have been a bit much to ask from a children's book. But is it also a bit much to ask for full centralised computer-based randomisation in an urgent care setting? If we worry about the risk of bias in non-randomised trials, then does it make it even more important to get emergency studies right? As the practical challenges are so immense, can we see if quasi-randomised emergency trials are good enough? Well, you see, this was addressed in a recent review, the reference of which is available off the website. It analysed a series of systematic reviews from the Cochrane Library, seven of them in total, which included 27 trials that had both quasi-randomised and truly randomised studies in them. They then looked at the baseline characteristics in those trials to see if there were important imbalances that implied that the allocation had been unfair in some way. They found that there were differences in two of the 11 quasi-randomised trials, that's about 18% but also in four of the 16 truly randomised trials, which is about 25%. Now, that's not a statistically significant difference, and it does imply that just having small sample sizes leads to potential imbalances as much or maybe even more than quasi-randomisation. They concluded quite reasonably that in the emergency setting the difference between quasi-randomization and true randomization is likely to be pretty small. The real issue is that emergency trials have too small a sample size and they need to be increased. Now what we can take from that is we can look relatively happily at systematic reviews that include both quasi and truly randomised trials and be confident that what we need to do is get big sample sizes rather than concentrate too much on the nature of the randomisation. The first topic we have this month is from the Department of Infectious Diseases at the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital. What this group have done is taken a very common clinical dilemma. Covering the paediatric haematology-oncology ward, you're asked to prescribe cotrimoxazole for prophylaxis against pneumocystis durovecchii pneumonia. That's PJP, which is the new name for pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, like we all used to know about as PCP. You refer to the usual drug manual, and you discover that there's a variety of dosing options, and wonder what regimen should you actually prescribe. Turning that into a structured clinical question comes... In immunocompromised children and adolescents without HIV infection, the patient group, which coltrimoxazole dosing regime, interventions and comparison, is most effective in presenting PJP infection and best tolerated? That's the outcomes. The group went away and they searched Medline, Embase, with a range of keywords relating to coltrimoxazole and PJP infection. The search identified a total of 972 publications. 
It was then gone through to take out the ones that particularly looked at the dosing regime and removed those studies which were about children with HIV infection. In the end, 11 articles fulfilled the inclusion criteria for their review. The studies included four randomised controlled trials and seven cohort studies, two of them being prospective and five of them retrospective. Four of those studies only include patients with ALL, which would be the most common indication for PCP prophylaxis, and others included a range of different hematological malignancies and also solid tumours. The regimes varied from continuous, that is given every day in the week, three days during the week for two studies, two days during the week for four studies, a sort of variation of two or three days, or just a single day on the week for one study each. The daily dose of the trimethoprim component varied between 4 and 10 milligrams per kilogram, or 150 to 160 milligrams per meter squared per day, depending on exactly how the dosing regime was calculated. The efficacy of giving it on a daily basis at ranges of around 150 mg per kilo per day is well established with the RCTs, showing excellent protection against PCP disease. From that baseline, people went on to study other types of regime, such as the one, two or three days a week. The largest one is a multi-centre prospective cohort study over a three-year period that compared the three days a week or two days a week or a larger dose on one day a week. In the whole of this study, actual PJP infection was only observed in two children, and one of those was definitely non-adherent to the prophylactic regime, and another one had stopped the cotrimoxazole prophylaxis because of adverse effects. That is, even the once-a-week regime in this prospective study was effective at keeping PCP infection at bay. The balance, really, between going for giving the treatment every day versus giving it less during the week is about adverse effects, the most common of which are rash, gastrointestinal disturbance and mild myelosuppression. Now, the limitation of this is clearly that the RCTs that are present are really about giving the dose continuously rather than comparing the different regimes. And some of these studies were published a long time ago, more than 20 years in some cases, you could then argue that maybe this limits applicability to aggressive chemotherapy protocols that are used today compared to the ones that were used previously. But many of the drugs were used at the same and the actual diseases themselves haven't particularly changed very much. You could argue that the evidence doesn't really demonstrate superiority for one regime over another and that the simplest regime might be the best to go forwards. On the other hand, if you do go for a regime which is given only once or twice a week, if you end up missing a dose, then you might drop off to be subtherapeutic really quite quickly. The sort of clinical bottom line that's suggested is that almost any prophylactic regime is effective, and probably the most useful thing to do is to give a dose in a regular fashion in order to prevent PJP infection to those patients who are at risk. Now, in an innovation to the podcast... Our second critically appraised topic is a telephone interview with the author, Katie Knight. So, uh, Dr Knight, you work at the Homerton Hospital um, and you've had an Archimedes published on the subject of an incidental neutropenia in an otherwise well child that turns up at the hospital. I wonder if you can give us a summary of what it is you found in your Archimedes and what you think that normal doctors should take away from it. Yeah, of course. So basically... 
see, um, I based my scenario on quite a common problem. I guess most people working in a paediatric emergency department would have come across at some point or another. A child turning up with a an infection, for example, a tonsillitis, um, some bloods being done, routine bloods, and there being an unexpected finding of a neutropenia. And then the question is whether um, we should treat this as a febrile neutropenia and keep the child in hospital and treat them with broad spectrum antibiotics, or whether, given that this is a relatively well child by um, their observation and the clinical examination, safe to send them home with just targeted antibiotic treatment for the infection that they've come in with. The search strategy basically um, included searching three large databases, Medline, Embase and C-I-N-A-H-L. And after quite a lot of searching through papers, I found seven different papers that were relevant to this subject. There was a really wide range, actually, of quality of papers and also the mm-hmm. size of the samples. And the methods involved were quite different between the papers as well. But essentially, they were all papers focused on children who had been discovered to have a neutropenia and what the outcomes of those children were. So... These were all incidental findings in neutropenia, excluding those children that had sort of known immunodeficiencies or being treated for cancer? Yes, that's right. Um, All the papers just concentrated on children who were otherwise well and hadn't had a previous diagnosis diagnosis of leukaemia, cancer or an immunodeficiency. And what were the findings? Basically, the findings were that um, if a moderate neutropenia is discovered during hospitalisation, mission and the child has no signs of sepsis, then they're very unlikely to have a serious bacterial infection, by which I mean a bloodstream infection. Also, the other thing that the papers drew out was that a transient moderate neutropenia doesn't then put the child at high risk of developing a secondary bacterial infection while they're uh, suffering that moderate neutropenia. The one thing that I should point out, though, is that obviously um, if a neutropenia is discovered, Um, the best idea is to get a blood film at the time and then it does need follow-up in the future just to make sure that that has resolved when the child is then well again. Thank you. So a a real Archimedes from a real clinical scenario going through the evidence and coming up with an answer that's really quite useful. You don't need to fret so much about a transient incidental finding of neutropenia in a patient. They don't need to eat in the same way as a kid that comes in on cancer chemotherapy and as long as you follow them up you can be pretty reassuring and send them home if that's the right thing to do clinically for them. Yep. Is that right? It was very reassuring for my practice, definitely. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Hopefully lots of other people too will send in their Archimedes and that will also help people in other clinical situations.